Hope you got a Bible. We're in John 13 tonight. Uh, one of my favorite texts to preach out of, one I've done a lot of preaching out of through the years. Um, so if some of this stuff is familiar, um, I like to say it's not because I don't have anything else to say. It's just because it's that important to say, right? Um, it, of course, the, the four Gospels, uh, there's, there's some things that are often repeated and, and uh, given to us um, more than once, and, and that's just because it's that important. And uh, But the one thing about John 13, it's very unique. Um, It's not repeated in the other Gospels, but I still think um, this, along with the few chapters that follow it, um, are some of the most important words ever written on on paper or written anywhere, honestly. but we made it clear um, that uh, we've kind of we've kind of passed the transition phase of this book. Um, uh, John twelve is a transition chapter uh, for this book for the ministry of Jesus, and, and what really helps bring into perspective um, what John is doing in this story and how John is crafting the story. Of course, he's telling it as it happened, but he's 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 kind of crafting the narrative in a very specific way that's unique to the other gospels. Um, but uh, what John is doing is is the time lapse between John one. Through eleven, um, when you compare it to what happens from John twelve to the end of the book, um, it, it, it can't go unnoticed, and it has to be um, it has to, to be important in the way John is telling the story. And, and I want to kind of draw your attention to this: from John one to John eleven, there is a three to four year passing of time. Um, Jesus' ministry lasted a little over three years. John the Baptist began his ministry a little before Jesus began his. Um, so you, you could say that uh, John one to John eleven um, spans almost four years. And then John 12 to John 21 takes just a week um, uh, to, uh, to, to kind of, when you, when you stretch it all together. So that's a pretty big deal, right? You have 11 chapters dedicated to four years, and you have, one, uh, you have uh, 10 chapters or more dedicated to one week. And that, if that kind of makes you think, well, maybe John is really kind of putting everything, putting an emphasis on something, he absolutely is. Um, and, and it's almost as if John's telling this story, it's almost as if time begins to slow down. Um, the passing of time begins to just slow down over this last week of Jesus' earthly ministry. Now, of course, John 12 is kind of this transition point that we've studied for the last several weeks. Uh, John 12 takes place on Saturday and then Sunday. That's Palm Sunday. Very important, right? Um, the beginning of what we know of the Holy Week, the Passion Week. Um, and, and then John uh, 12 concludes with Jesus going dark um, and effectively ending his public ministry and really walking off the stage after giving one final plea for everyone to follow him and listen to him and not to not believe the lies that are going to be spread about him. Um, but over the next couple of days, John doesn't include it in his story, but the other Gospels do. Um, from the Monday through Wednesday of Holy Week or Passion Week, um, Jesus is still in and around Jerusalem, and he's intentionally stirring the pot um, with the religious leaders. Um, he'd already served notice that things were coming to an end, uh, but don't think this is a stopping point. Think more of a conclusion to something that was going on in the beginning of something or the fulfillment of that thing and, and then fleshing out to something even bigger and something even better. Jesus takes on the temple and the religious leaders Monday through Wednesday of Holy Week. Um, he cleanses the temple famously. He goes in with the whips and, and, and drives out the money changers on Monday and then engages in this very heated and spiraling debate with the religious leaders. If you go read Matthew 23, um, you can read a, a, a very, very, very kind of just intense, very um, almost at times you feel sorry for the religious leaders because Jesus is just kind of taking it to them and, and, and they're being humiliated on their turf. Um, and, and, and Jesus knew, he knew they were plotting to kill him, yet he was right in front of them and they dared lay a hand on him 
because he was just speaking with such authority and everybody around him were cheering him on as he put the religious leaders in their place and exposed the hypocrisy behind their movement and behind the way they managed things and represented or falsely represented the Lord. He spoke with such authority. They were scared of him, but, but you would wonder, why were they scared of Jesus? Really, he had never raised a finger against anyone. He was so passive. He was so timid at times, but they couldn't really explain it. They just had no case against him, and they felt intimidated by him. They couldn't kill him, though, without getting Rome involved, and that really is what they're doing this week. Uh, after they put out the, the, the notice, they wanted someone to betray him, someone to help them from the inside to, that they could expose and, and pin something on Jesus, um, because they could not they could not kill him without Rome's help. Uh, the Jewish people were not, didn't have the authority to use capital punishment. Um, Rome had to certify that, and Rome would need a pretty credible reason. Now, Rome was pretty ruthless, but they weren't crazy. They weren't about to kill a Jewish prophet or a would-be prophet or a Jewish man that had such a following. They weren't about to kill a Jewish prophet during Passover week because they knew that would just incite riots and rebellions, and they were not wanting to put out that fire and stir that that, that situation. So even the religious leaders, even though they hated him, they were going to have to convince Rome that he was a threat, that he posed an imminent threat to Rome as an empire and to Caesar as the emperor. And, and they were also going to have to convince the masses that Jesus was a fraud, that he wasn't the wonder worker, uh, Messiah from God that they had were convinced he was. They were going to have to change the mind of the masses that Jesus was this fraud. He was this, uh, you know, he was a fake. He, he was misleading them. If they could do both, if they could do both convincing Rome that he was a threat and convincing the masses that he was a fraud, then they might have a leg to stand on, but that was going to be hard to do. They even themselves said in John 12, the world has gone after him. What can we do to stop him? But it's almost as if Jesus stops himself and Jesus begins to change the direction of his, of his movement. Of course, they were working diligently in vain this whole time. Jesus was large and in charge of this situation. He would give them what they wanted, but all in his time, nobody was going to take his life from him. But he was going to lay it down. What really tipped the scales in their favor, though, was on Wednesday when he finally cut loose the followers who were only in it for the fame and the fortune. He turns to the temple after he's humiliated the religious leaders, he has this crowd of people who are expecting him to say, hey, y'all, these guys have been removed. These guys have been called out. These guys have been exposed. Now I'm going to restore this temple to its true purpose. And oh, by the way, I am the king. Y'all had to parade for me. I, I haven't forgot about that. I'm going to turn this whole movement, I'm going to turn this whole thing into all about me. And I'm about to bring the kingdom y'all been waiting for. But that's not what Jesus does, even though they expected him to do it. Jesus, on the Wednesday before Passover, begins to talk about how Jerusalem is just years away from being destroyed. And everyone kind of opens their eyes wide and begins to, to, to ask questions and, and look around and saying, what did he say? He says, these stones that you see and that you marvel at, not one of them will be left when the armies of the world come up against Jerusalem in this same generation. Not, this gener not a generation will pass before all these things will happen. And then he begins to talk about the temple being destroyed. He talks about how this prosperous kingdom they were expecting was not going to come. And those that were expecting fame and fortune were horrified at who Jesus had become, what he was talking about. This couldn't be the same man that healed and saved and did miracles. This man was talking as if everyone was going 
to lose all they had ever worked for, and, and the religious leaders suddenly had ammunition. Suddenly, as Jesus talked about destroying the temple, even the twelve would be hard-pressed to spend that talk in anything but blasphemy. So they went to work to bring him down. Meanwhile, Jesus signaled to his followers that it was time to go dark. They gathered into an upper room on Thursday of Passover week, the night before Passover, the day before Passover, an upper room that Jesus had eerily prepared for them the whole time. A place that, was, uh, that gave the aroma and the mood of a private, um, off-the-grid sanctuary lit dimly with a group with a very intimate setting for just Jesus and his 12 followers to spend the night together around a table talking about what he was about to do and what they would do after that. They didn't expect this. They were expecting thrones and kingdoms and they were expecting fame and fortune and, 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 and victory. But Jesus took the 12 into this upper room and poured his heart out to them, preparing for them, preparing for them for what was next. And, 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 and listen, they had witnessed miracles. They had witnessed signs and wonders, but what they were about to witness was greater than all those things. And these chapters in this story, these stories don't get the attention that the wonders and the miracles get, but they should. They absolutely should. They were about to understand the purpose of all that they had seen, the reason they had seen all those things, so that they would believe, so that they would be prepared to tell the whole world about Jesus. They were, un- they were going to finally understand the point of all of this. It was all pointing them towards Jesus' ministry, maybe coming to an end, but the church's was just about to begin. The movement that Jesus started wasn't coming to an end by no means. It was just, getting, it was just about to transition to something even better and bigger than they could ever uh, imagine. And believe it or not, the blueprint for the church going forward, the heart of the movement Jesus was wanting to build, would be spelled out in complete detail in this upper room. That Wednesday night, that into Thursday night, that is, and this is nearly perfect timing for us as we build up toward Easter over the next month. But there, these services, these messages, these chapters that we study, they're not just fitting for Easter time, even though it is appropriate. Uh, they're truly evergreen. They're always appropriate, and they are so essential. Hear me out. They are so essential for building and strengthening and sustaining the church. John 13 through John 17. John 13 through 17 brings us together around some of those powerful and inspired words that have ever been recorded and more than just recorded. These words were spoken by Jesus himself the night before he died. Jesus sat down with his disciples to prepare them for what was next, for what phase two would bring, if you will. And, and he didn't rehash parables. This is what's so unique about this time. And maybe this is why the other, other three Gospels didn't talk about it. And they don't record any of these conversations. John is the only one. Maybe that's because he was sitting right next to Jesus and he was given that special um, insight and inspiration that the other three didn't. Who knows? But in this night, on this night, in this time, in this upper room, Jesus does not rehash parables. He doesn't repeat sermons. He doesn't talk about all the miracles that he'd performed. I mean, we've witnessed a lot of miracles, haven't we? But Jesus doesn't remind them of a single one of those, and he doesn't talk about how they're going to do anything um, like that themselves. He offers brand new truth exclusive to this, these four chapters. And here's the thing. The rest of the New Testament... The rest of the New Testament, and you should read it all, and you can actually fact check me on this. The rest of the New Testament, especially the teachings of Paul and Peter and James, 
and John, the rest of the New Testament draws more from these four chapters than any other book of books of the Bible, any other part of the Gospels. The Paul's teaching, John's teaching, Peter's teaching, James' teaching draws more from the upper room conversations than any other part of the Bible. That's how big of a deal these four chapters are. That's how big of a deal what Jesus talks about to his disciples is. He offers brand new truths. More so than any other of his teachings, these chapters and these truths are going to rewrite the book on their faith and really write the book on Christianity. Christianity, in theory and in practice, and what its concepts are and what we should do with those concepts. In theory and in practice, Christianity is defined in John 13 through John 17. If you, as a, as a Christian, wanting to be a part of his church, wanting to lead in his church, wanting to make a difference for the church and in the world, if you were to read these four chapters and say, this is what I'm going to focus on and prioritize, you would be equipped to do everything you need to do as a Christian, as a church member, as a believer in a world that does not believe. These four chapters equip every single one of us in such an amazing way. And I don't say that lightly. Now that we've come, uh, not that what has come before or elsewhere isn't important, but from now it would be ran through. And everything we believe and teach and practice should be run through these teachings of Jesus he saved for the very last night of his life. Here's what I mean before this, and, and here's what's so different about the, the teachings in these four chapters in the rest of the book, in the rest of the book of John, the rest of the Gospels. Before this, before this, this night, much of what he taught and modeled before them was really an extension of what the Old Testament taught and the ideas the Jews already had uh, around the Old Covenant. If you think about it, John begins his gospel, he frames it around very Jewish concepts, very exclusively Jewish concepts. The Word of God, they, were, they knew that God spoke in the Old Testament, and they believed that, and John says, hey, Jesus is the Word that we believe in the Old, made flesh and, and, and made very clear. John talked about how Jesus was the favor or the blessing from God, made real and made accessible. The blessing, the ancient sought after the Abraham Isaac and Moses and David that blessing was given through Jesus he called Jesus the Lamb of God right that was such a Jewish concept but remember in John 2 Jesus signaled that he was building something brand new not just an extension of Judaism not just Judaism 2.0 but much of what he drew from was obviously still rooted in Judaism the the bread of life the bread of heaven like the manna that fell the good shepherd drawing on all the shepherd analogies of the old testament all those drawing on what the jews already knew but jesus was truly introducing something brand new that whether you had any connection to the old testament or not whether you had any prior knowledge to the jewish scriptures or not he was introducing something, he was teaching on something that if these things were prioritized and taught and practiced, this would be enough to win the world. Now, we are benefiting from the fact that we have a complete Bible, right? That we know the old and the new and we can understand everything. But in the ancient world, as they were about to take the gospel to pagans, to people who knew nothing of Moses or David, right, or the prophets, this was so important. But here's the thing. What changed the world was because the, the disciples prioritized these simple teachings without trying to mix things up and go too far off the grid. This could make as much of a difference in our ministry, in our life, as it did for them if we gave it the priority that they did. Now, again, he's introducing something brand new for the whole world. It becomes clear in these next few chapters clear for anyone to understand and be able to find a place. And, and on this night, before he dies, he laid out all the cards on the table 
and revealed himself in a way that he had never before and that had not been seen before. Jesus introduces the new covenant. The new covenant as in, hey, that other covenant that you call the only covenant, I'm going to now refer to it as the old covenant. And this was a big kind of no-no for a Jewish man, a believer in the Jewish scriptures, to say, hey, y'all, that other stuff, it's old now. It's been replaced. Now you know why they all got kind of scared and ran off, right? Because this was blasphemy for a Jewish man to say, I'm adding something to what y'all thought was completed. It's not done. I'm fulfilling it. I'm finishing it. I'm perfecting it, right? We've heard that from Jesus all over the, the Gospels. He talks about a new covenant. He came to make for them with his own blood. He gives them the Lord's Supper. He redefines the Passover meal. No longer is this the lamb body in the lamb's blood of exodus and of egypt this is my body this is my blood because i'm starting something new on this last night he details the fine print of the new covenant he details who his followers are to be at the very core he tells them of the transformation they are going to undergo as believers as participants in this new covenant up until this point, Jesus has only teased out his power and what he could do. He had healed people of blindness, disabilities, even raised Lazarus from the dead. But all of those were just previews of what he was about to provide for everybody who believes. Previews of a greater healing that we all need. A healing from sin. A transformation by grace that would make an eternal difference. Not just a temporary difference, but a difference in who we are and who we will be forever. After the weekend they were about to face in its events, things would be different forever. They would need this more than they knew. After his resurrection, he would send his church on a mission. He wanted this last night with, the, with these men to establish this foundation. In a sense, he was writing their mission statement. He was outlawing their bylaws as they took his body, they took his blood. They would be preparing and committing themselves to what was ahead. Again, it's not an overstatement to say what, what began in this upper room is still being felt today through the work and ministry of every church. It hangs on what Jesus says, especially in tonight's chapter. The major difference in what they had known before this and as they followed Jesus and what they were going to, 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 to do forward as they continued to follow was that they were also going to lead. They were no longer just watching Jesus. They were going to lead and be leaders in his church, bringing others to Jesus. So this is what is it's a big shift for them. Up until this point, they had just been watching, but from now on, they would be doing. From this point on, following Jesus wouldn't just be about observation but it would be about participation, which is what these chapters emphasize more than anything, is that we're not just watching something God's doing. We're a part of what God is doing. God is doing it through us, which is very important. And knowing what we know now, how all things went down, we understand how important it was for Jesus to privately disclose all this with his believers, his disciples. The seeds of the church and Christianity as an institution, as a movement, were laid in this upper room and across these next four chapters. It's not a far-fetched thing to say that this may be the most important room in history. And there's no way to hide from these chapters if we're a Christian. There's no way for us to say, well, I didn't know that was there. I don't think that's important for me. It is the most important for every one of us. In fact, our authenticity as Christians, can be measured by how these truths have transformed us. 
That's pretty big to say, but that's absolutely the case. Our authenticity, our genuineness as Christians, the litmus test for whether we are who we say we are, can be measured to how these truths, especially tonight, how these truths have transformed us. Do we behave after what we believe? If we don't measure up to these four chapters, we have missed the mark. The church has missed the mark, which is a lot of pressure, I know. Now, if you think I may have oversold these chapters, I promise you, I couldn't possibly do justice to what we have in front of us. And may we open up to what God has to say to us, beginning, beginning with John 13. We're going to read this whole chapter, um, but if you've read it before, you probably know where we're headed. So John 13, verse 1 Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were with, who were in the world, he loved them to the very end. So Jesus is sitting there at the dinner table. He's got all the guys, you know, jokers to his left and jokers to his right. Is that the song? He's got his disciples on both sides of him. He knows Judas is right there. We'll look at that in a minute. He showed them his love all throughout his ministry. He showed him his, them his love unto its true purpose. This is why he had come, right, to build his church so that the world could be saved. And as Jesus stared his destiny in the face, knowing that in just 18 hours, from the, in just 18 hours he would be spread out on a cross. He would be bleeding out on a cross. He would cry out, it is finished. The, the Greek word there is to die, which means it is fulfilled. This discourse, followed by his sacrifice, would finish his mission. And that word, the end, that, the Greek word there for the end is that word telos, the same word he uses on the cross, that this is the fulfillment of what he has been building and waiting for. John tells us Jesus' thoughts as he becomes aware of all this, or as it sinks in on him. He looks around the room and he says, I've given them everything I've got. I've poured everything out to them. I'm about to teach them the very foundational things they need to know to take this movement forward. They can't fail if they follow these things. But, but then it dawns on him in verse 2 and 3. With supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing the Father had given him all things into his hands, that he had come from God and that he was going to God. So it's, it's Jesus has this moment where I've given them everything. I've showed them the body, the blood. I've showed them what I'm going to do. They all know there's no secrets anymore. There's no confusion anymore. But he's still yet this one guy that just took the, the bread and the juice from me, right? He is going to betray me. He's going to use this against me. I've given him everything. And now this guy's going to lead a rebellion. And every one of these men are going to unfollow me over the next couple of hours. It sinks in on him. God in flesh seated it with 11 believers and the devil himself hidden away in an attic because it's too dangerous to be outside. And something in Jesus thought, is this what I was born for? I mean, I've got infinite worth. I, I, I am from God. I'm destined to go back to God. I'm facing not a celebration anymore, but one of these men is going to betray me. The rest are going to abandon me. I'm going to bleed out tomorrow. Is this my destiny? Is this my purpose? Do I have to go through with this? It dawns on him. He has not done a thing wrong. He has been perfect all the way through, and this is what it's led him to. It dawns on Jesus. It dawned on Jesus that he was the most powerful person in the room. 
what was he going to do with that power? He could do anything he wanted to with it, right? He could snap his fingers and demolish the whole place and say, these guys didn't deserve me. He could take over. He could rule. He could reign. He could just go back to heaven without going through the cross. He knew he was large and in charge. What was he going to do with that power? He had just explained to them the Passover plan. Judas was going to use it against him. He could stop Judas. He could call the eleven to, to fight with him or fight for him. He could change the course of his mission and take what was rightfully his. Or he could lay his life down and die alone, abandoned, deserted like a lamb. He could return to the same group of men find them scared to death and faithless. He could breathe the Holy Spirit on them and say, go to the world and tell the good news. But there was no guarantee that any of that would work. If Satan could infiltrate his movement and take Judas down, who could be next? What might happen next? Should he go through with this? It dawned on Jesus. He was so powerful. He was almighty. He was fully God. He had spent so many years focusing on doing for others. And for just one minute, he considered himself... And it rushed on him as it would any man with this kind of power. Is this really what I want to do? Is this really what I have to do? I mean, what would you do? We'll get there. He could break from the script and leverage his power for himself. Or he could stick to the plan and he could lay it down for everybody else. And that leads me to this. What do you do when you find yourself in the same situation? When it comes to your relationships, your job, when opportunities are in front of you, when everybody's looking or when no one is looking? And this is what is at the core of our faith and what drives our movement. What do you do when it dawns on you that you're the most powerful person in the room? When you have all the power, all the leverage, all the influence. When you can change the direction of the conversation. When you can change the outcome in the palm of your hand. You hold everything right. When you have the ability to shift the conversation. You can lead. You can control. You can do more than anyone else in the room. You have all the power and all the influence. What do you do when that washes over you? And isn't this where we all want to be? Isn't this the dream? so that we can do what we want and get by with whatever we want, right? This is the dream of our culture today, to be the influencer, to be a trendsetter, to control culture, to dominate culture, more relevant than ever before, I believe. And could it be that Christianity at its very core lives and dies on what we do when we're in situations like this? Jesus sees his enemy. He knows the Father has promised him all things. He knows his destiny. And th this is pressing on him in a way that has never happened before. He knows what he can do. But what is he going to do? And look at what he does. He rose from supper. He lays aside his outer garment. He takes a towel and girds himself. And at the moment, everybody in the room just hushed because they knew what Jesus was about to do. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel which, he was, which with he was girded. Jesus assumes the role of a servant. 
He assumes the role of a slave in doing the most humiliating thing, washing the nasty feet of the men that had traveled through the land of Jerusalem over the last couple of days. And obviously this was a preview of what he was going to do the next day. When he would pour himself out on a cross, Jesus established something very core to Christianity with this act. When he could have dominated and overpowered, he got up, stripped himself of his glory, and girded himself with a servant's towel and washed their feet. And this is what he establishes in that moment. The Christianity at its very core, is about powerful people emptying themselves for the sake of the powerless. And you can replace powerful with any other relevant term. Wealthy people, fortunate people, wise people, gifted people, popular people. It's about those that have and those that are aware of what they have emptying themselves for those that do not yet know or those that never will know or those that never will have. That flies in the face of every trend of every culture. But that is what changed the world once and what will only change the world again when Christianity is about this very thing. If it means forgiving someone, even especially when it means forgiving someone. Of course, if you know the story, Peter thinks this is the most heinous thing ever. He attempts to stop Jesus. He says, Lord, Lord, are you washing my feet? I mean, we could have paid someone to do this. We didn't know that you didn't arrange a servant to come and wash our feet. I mean, I know it's pretty smelly in here. I mean, we've all been walking around this town, and everybody's, you know, just sweaty, and we're all, you know, we don't, haven't really had a bath, right? I, I know it's kind of nasty, and, 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 but we assumed you were going to, I mean, John, didn't you think that Jesus was going to have a slave here to wash our feet? Oh, of course we thought he was going to, because we would have piped paid someone to do it ourselves of course we wouldn't have done it ourselves because that's kind of a nasty thing to do we're too good for that but Jesus are you trying to insult us or are you trying to get back at us because we didn't hire someone I mean you don't have to do this and then Jesus says absolutely I have to do this because there's something in me that would rather not do this there's something in you that would never, ever choose to do this, but I've got to do this to make a point. I've got to do this to lay the law down. I've got to do this to establish a principle that you all must follow in everything that you do. Jesus washes their feet. Of course, washing uh, is a symbol of forgiveness, which further drives the mission he was about to send them on as, as the church what the church has been called to do forever and ever since to be, a pe to be a forgiven people who empty themselves for the sake of the unforgiven, even the unforgivable, the ones that we can't imagine forgiving. That's what Jesus did. He washed their feet. Didn't he wash Judas' his feet? This is who we are. This is how we make an impact in our world. Now, before you say maybe we're taking this a little far, Justin, can't this be something that Jesus did for us? I mean, is this really him expecting us to do something similar? Verse 12. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I've done to you? And they're thinking, other than kind of wash our feet and make us feel bad and and I, we're kind of, I guess we're, we're thinking that you're kind of just mad at us or, you know, of course you didn't enjoy doing that, did you? I mean, we don't know why you did that, Jesus. He says, well, I'm glad you asked. You call me teacher and Lord and you do well because that's who I am. 
But if then I, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. What? Jesus, now, I know you're going to get real spiritual with this because we know that we hope you don't mean literally wash people's feet because that'd be nasty. But we probably think you're going to go big with this and go big picture with this and talk about how we should serve people like you just served us. Is that where you're going? Absolutely. Thank you for pointing that out. Verse 15. For I have given you what? An example that you should do as I have done to you. Why is that not preached on more often? Why is that not what drives us as a church? Why is that not the main thing of importance for us? That's not what sells tickets, is it? That's not what keeps people engaged, is it? Jesus establishes a rule. We'll call it the platinum rule. Do unto others as Jesus has done unto us. Of all we're about to read, this is the one thing that stands above the rest. He let his life down for us. He forgave us. He saved us. We can't save other people, but he can. If we do for others as he has done to us. Listen, church, we can't forget this. But sadly, we have, haven't we? Jesus, again, washes the feet of even the one who would betray him, of the one who would deny him. Remember, Jesus, as if it's to make clear what our mission is, but even more so to highlight his own heart and just how perfect and pure he was in his love. And as we would expect this to be driven home to a perfect point, verse 31 through 35 will be our end tonight. So when he had gone out, Judas that is, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. So he's talking about how this is the main thing that God has sent him to do. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I'm going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, hey, y'all, I'm about to go. So I'm leaving y'all with one last or one reminder. This is the banner which everything else I'll say is going to come after or come under. If you want to know where I'm going, hey, I'm going to heaven. But in the meantime, this is who you are to be in my absence or in my place. A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another as I have loved you. That you also love one another. By this, we should know this by now, right? By this, all will know that you are my disciples if, if, you have love one for or for one another. He builds up, citing that God has been glorified and will be glorified through what he began in this chapter, what he began in this upper room with this principle. He highlights just how monumental this chapter is in its events by saying, I give you a new commandment, not another one, not number 11 or number 620, whatever you want to count. This is not just a next, but this is a word, this word new. It's not neo, it's Kanye, which means fresh and new and innovative. It means something brand new, taking the place of the old model. It's horse to car. This would be an all-encompassing command, a commandment that would set the church apart, that would change the world. If the church gets this one thing, we can change culture. 
It would change hearts if we, it, we can reflect God's heart clearly and powerfully without fail with every thought, word, and deed if we just love one another as He has loved us. This means there are no excuses. We have to ask ourselves before every act done in secret or in public, before we interact with strangers, family, friends, or enemies, what does love require of me? Because Jesus says, that is the only commandment I have to worry about. Romans 13 says, Oh, no one anything except to love each other. That the only thing that we are obligated to always do to each other is love them. For the one who loves another has fulfilled all the word, all the law. Love doesn't take advantage, it doesn't mistreat, it doesn't break confidence, it's not an opportunist. Love always considers what is for the good of others. It never entertains what might be to their detriment. It never says, you know what, I might do that, even though it might hurt somebody, but they won't know about it, so maybe I can do it anyway. Love always considers what is for their good. What will, make, what will be absolutely not for their detriment. And you may say, well, what about what God wants? Isn't that the more important thing? It's really simple. We can't love someone and sin against them. You know what God wants? Don't sin. It hurts people. And you can't love someone and sin against them. And you can't love someone and sin with them. Because love says, you know what, you might not think this is wrong, but I know it's wrong. And I can't do that to you, and I can't do that to God. That's what glorifies God. Our love for God is authenticated by our love for others. Think about this. John, in 1 John 4.20, says that believers can't love God without loving others. Right? How can you love God who you can't see if you don't love your brother or sister who you can? So what if non-believers won't ever know God's love until they know our love? I mean, that's not too irrational of a, of a step to take, right? I mean, if we can't love God without loving others, then I, I think it's pretty safe to say that non-believers are never going to know God's love until they know our love. That's the way God chose how this should work. Paul writes to the Galatians when they argue over what is the main thing, what law or tradition they should prioritize. And Paul says to the Jews and the Gentiles, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. Law, Old Testament, not whatever tradition, none of that stuff matters. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. That's what Jesus was doing when he laid his life down, when he laid his power down. That's what he calls us to do every single day. By this, one and only thing, all will know that we are His if we love like He loves. Not our wisdom. You know, I used to think that people knew I was a Christian because how smart I was, how much I knew about the Bible. That's not what impresses God and it's not what impresses people. We're not recognized by our attendance, by our generosity, by our power, by how we serve, but how we love. Love is our brand. It's our identity. We can't have off days when it comes to love. We can't have selfish days. We have to love if we want the world to know. It requires putting God first. And if we, are to put, if we put Christ first, we'll put love first. Jesus says, hey, that's 
what I want you to do. Love is not a reaction. Love is not only a response. Love looks for opportunities. Love is not just say, well, they need something. I better go, I better break my hand out. Love looks for opportunities and reaches out before it even may be necessary. You know what drives my ministry? What drives me as a preacher, and maybe this is crazy, and this is maybe why I'm kind of an enigma in some circles. What drives my ministry is not what looks churchy or sounds churchy. What drives my ministry is not what some people say looks Christian or looks religious. What drives me in my ministry is what looks like and what is a love-first approach. Because that's what Christian is. Not this or that, but loving first. What expresses and conveys that God so loves the world? That God so loves and that we are going to love as He has loved. It drives how we do as a church, how we, how we live privately, publicly, professionally. God's love is never lost on a Christian. Love from God unto us and how it must go through us. It always dawns on us or it should always dawn on us. Oh, how we are loved. And for that reason... Love looks across every room it walks into. It realizes how it got there and why it was placed there. Just like Jesus in the upper room. He looks across the room. He knows what he can do. He knows how powerful he is, but he looks across the room. He realizes how he got there, why he was placed there, and he sees the opportunity to live up to the name of love. Whether it's your living room, your boardroom, or your worship room, what do I need to do? To show God's love. What do, we, what do you do when it dawns on you that you've got all the power? As a Christian, every room you enter, every situation you enter, you are a child of God. You bear His image. You're surrounded by many who do not know that and maybe have never heard that. But as a Christian, following the new commandment, following this primary platinum rule, we know it's our calling to love with every word and deed because heaven is watching and the world is waiting. What do you do when it dawns on you? You can do whatever you want to do. Jesus says there's only one thing you can do, and that's love, 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 like I have loved you. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you so much for this word. Lord, I, I got to say I've preached that a lot, and I'm kind of know what to say by now but I still don't love like I should love and I can be really good at preaching it but if I'm not good at loving and doing it then I'm wasting my time father we've got some good hearers tonight and they've heard me say this stuff a lot before but it's my job to keep saying it but it's my job more importantly to keep doing it and father everybody in this house tonight they know how much you love them and I don't know what kind of power they have, what kind of influence they have, what kind of you know, ability they have. But tomorrow at work, they're going to find themselves in a room full of people where they could just walk away. They could just say something smart. They could, they could overwhelm and they could overpower. They could leverage, it, leverage what they know against somebody else. I don't know what it is, but they're going to find themselves in a room tomorrow when they could just ignore it. They could just turn away from it. Or they could address the biggest issue in the room that somebody needs to know. Somebody needs to feel the love of God like we have felt it. 
So, Lord, when it dawns on everybody tomorrow that they've got all that they need and they don't really need to do anything else, when it dawns on them tomorrow, remind them how you have loved them and help them. Help us all. Give us the courage and the strength to love like you've loved. Maybe then and only then will the world change like you changed it before. Father, I love you. Thank you so much for always doing what was right for others and help us to do the same. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.